You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you open our minds and open our hearts to hear what you would have to speak to us this morning. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, Church of the Redeemer. My name is Matt Cohn. For those of you who don't know me, uh, it is a pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Uh, In case you're keeping track, I don't actually expect that you are, but it has been five months since I have been up here and had the privilege to be able to preach. There's a lot of really good reasons for that. One, we had a baby, Mira Eliana, who has just turned four months old. And the other one is that uh, I was able to get ordained uh, as well. And so, With that, I just want to say thank you to y'all as we have just celebrated Thanksgiving. Uh, A big thing that I was reflecting upon this past week was just how incredibly uh, gracious you all have been to me in particular and to us as a family as it relates to allowing us to kind of take care of and care for some of these more significant things uh, in our lives without a whole lot of outside pressure or whatnot. And so it has been a real blessing to us. So thank you for that. Now, last week, we heard that today begins Advent. We've heard that a couple times already. We've seen the candle up here, and this is going to be the season in the church calendar where we pivot for a few weeks to prepare for Jesus' birth. And in God's goodness, our text, the author of 1 King, also does a little bit of a pivot. He's been going on this direction with the history of Israel, but starting here in chapter 5, he takes a pause Similarly, similarly to what we will be doing as we prepare for Christ's birth with Advent, he takes a pause to really drill down on something uh, in our text as well. It's a particular event in Israel's history. It's the building of the temple and its significance, and he does this from chapters 5 through 9, which, you know, that's the length of Advent as far as we preaching one chapter per. So, That's going to be what we're preaching through, and in a beautiful plan of God, Israel building the temple and Christ's incarnation are a whole lot more similar than we might originally think, and that is only going to become more evident to all of us throughout the rest of Advent. So, isn't God so good? Well, in 1 Kings, thus far, we have seen and we have heard a lot about wisdom through the life of Solomon. And if you're anything like me, you want to be wise like Solomon. And like Solomon in chapter 3, when he was asked to adjudicate between these two women who were coming to him with one baby, saying that this one baby was both of theirs, we are all now in difficult situations, and we want wisdom to be able to navigate those situations with grace. And I know there's some of us in here who are preparing to retire. We can retire well, or we can just burn all of our bridges on our way out. Some of us are going to be graduating this May, and we're trying to decide whether and where we're going to go to college. And those are really big decisions. As a former campus minister, I know those are really big decisions. Some others of us have heard about a medical diagnosis, and and we really need divine grace to help us to know how to care for ourselves and how to care for our families, too, in the best way. Some of us are even longing for our children to know Jesus. And we want to pursue their hearts while at the same time assuring them that we love them no matter what. And they have the freedom to choose whether they're going to accept Jesus or not. And that that is a really difficult and delicate balance. 
And these are real situations, these are real questions, and the tension that we feel to think and to live with wisdom as we navigate these situations, it actually does honor God. But my hope is that we're going to see today that the life of wisdom is actually far simpler than we think. And here, I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out here for you guys, here is the whole sermon, and it's really just one point. The whole sermon is that the way God fulfills his promises is through love. Now, we are going to still be doing more. We've got communion coming, but you can kind of check out for now if you want to. But that is the whole sermon, the way God fulfills his promises is through love. See, we're going to see through Solomon's failures here, in particular in chapter 5, but we've seen a couple examples of this already, that God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises. And the way that they're fulfilled actually does matter to him. And the way that God fulfills his promises is through love. But, but Matt, I, I thought we were talking about wisdom. That's been the whole part of the introduction so far. We haven't even read the text, and you're talking about wisdom. Well, we are going to be talking about wisdom, because wisdom without love isn't actually wisdom at all. Wisdom without love is foolishness. But let's just go ahead and read the text. 1 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians." And as soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly. And he said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. Now we're going to skip forward to verse 13. Verse 13, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. And the draft numbered 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Now, Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so while we can easily read this chapter as just a very straightforward account of how God provided for Solomon to build the temple, there are actually two major biblical themes going on in the background here that are significant and that are worth exploring, and that's going to kind of be where we spend the majority of our time this morning. The first major theme is that God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises. And we see this in the foundation of Hiram's relationship with Solomon. 
So verses 1 and 7, which I read, make it clear that Hiram and Solomon's relationship is actually Hiram and David's relationship. And so verses 1 through 12, actually, they're actually about David. They're not really about Solomon. Solomon's just an actor who's sitting in the midst of David uh, and, and all the blessings of David. You know, see, Hiram, he's a king, and he didn't become king of Tyre by chance. He's a, he's a pretty smart and he's a savvy guy, much like Solomon. And as uh, Tyre, the nation that he controlled, uh, it, it controls the sea, but Ty- Hiram knows that Israel controls the land. And because of that, he knows that um, he had a treaty with David. And he knows that whoever the new leader of Israel is, it's going to be beneficial for Hiram to maintain a really good relationship with him. So we just have a lot of like politics going on right here. And you could even say that Hiram doesn't really care who the, new, who the new leader is. He just really cares for political reasons that the new leader is one of David's sons, because again, he had a treaty with David. And he's curious whether that new leader wants to maintain their political relationship. So this is kind of some context on what's going on between the back and forth between Hiram and Solomon. And then, of course, when Hiram sees that Solomon does want to maintain that political relationship, he is overjoyed, especially since it's just going to cost him some trees. And he's going to end up getting paid back for those trees, too. So uh, it's a pretty good situation for Hiram. But as much as verses 1 and 12, or 1 through 12, are about Hiram and David, even, and Solomon's just kind of a, a player in the midst of it, Really, they're about David and God. Because Solomon even alludes to this in verse 5, when he says that God told David, his son, whom he will set on the throne, will build a house for him in 2 Samuel 7. Now, this was a promise of God, and it just wasn't any promise. See, it was a covenant promise, because it was made in the midst of God's conversation with David when the Lord established his covenant with David. So it was kind of a big deal. So really what we have going on here in verses 1 through 12 is just Solomon cashing in on God's promise to his dad. And then Hiram, his response has everything to do with God honoring the covenant that he made with David. And and this is really key because even through a pagan king, God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises. And so that's the first theme, the first kind of thing going on in the background of our text this morning. And the second is that the way God's promises are fulfilled actually does matter to him. And we see this through Solomon's law-breaking. And, I mean, where do we start? We have seen in previous weeks already that Solomon was disobedient to the Lord because he married an Egyptian princess. We have already seen that he had a head of forced labor. And we have already seen that he compiled 40,000 horses to just continue to build up his military might. Now, if you were to look at this from the world's perspective... Yeah, sure. Marrying an Egyptian princess, that actually was politically wise. Having a head of forced labor, that that may have been administratively wise. And then, of course, compiling 40,000 horses, that may have been strategically or, or militarily wise. But see, the thing is that none of these wise actions honored God. And in fact, they weren't even neutral. These actions were actually disobedient. All these things Solomon was doing, they were actually common practice in Israel. And they were common practice in the surrounding nations in his day. Because even his father David had a a head of forced labor. But the thing that differentiated or made Solomon unique versus all of these others was his excess. In chapter 5, the author lets us see just how extensive Solomon's forced labor was. And then what he chose to do with them. And what do we see? I mean, I read it, but Solomon drafted about 180,000 men into forced labor. 
30,000 of those were Israelites who were required to work four months of the month, four months of the year. And 150,000 of those were just basically Canaanites who were still living the land at that time. And 180,000 people back then. That was a really, that was a lot of people. So yeah, of course, God wanted Solomon to build the temple. And he was going to be faithful to provide for Solomon to do it. But he cared how Solomon built the temple. And ultimately, Solomon chose the most expedient, the most natural way, according to the world's standards. Well, I have all these people, and I'm king. I'm just going to make them do it. But that wasn't God's way. You know, the author of Kings doesn't say it, but his audience would have certainly been familiar with Exodus 22 and with Leviticus 25, both of which address how the nation of Israel was to treat their citizens and immigrants and sojourners in their midst. And if this was true of the nation of Israel, how much more true was this for the king of Israel? And the short version is just that God's heart for them was to be treated well, not to be trafficked into forced labor and enslaved. And in fact, I mean, as we continue to read through Kings, we're going to see that despite Solomon's wisdom, he is continually unfaithful and disobedient to the Lord. I mean, he may have been pursuing God's will, but he was doing it in unjust and unfaithful means. And ultimately, this is what topples the United Kingdom and fractures the Davidic line over the reign of Israel. Solomon's unfaithfulness. Well, what is God's way, then, that he fulfills his promises? I mean, yes, this is an oversimplification. I'm going to get more practical in a moment. But again, our main point is that God fulfills his promises through love. Can his promises be fulfilled in other ways? Yes, of course they can. We've already seen that here. We see that in other places as well. But that is not his way. So to show this more or to get more practical, we really need to distinguish between the way that God's promises are fulfilled and the actual fulfillment of them. Because there is a difference. As anyone who knows construction here can attest, it's one thing to build a house, and it's another thing to build a house to code. The way the house is built matters almost as much as the fact that it was finished in the first place. Now, a biblical example is we see Paul acknowledge in Philippians that they're preaching Christ from selfish ambition, and they're people preaching Christ from love. Both of them are preaching Christ, but their motivations for doing it could not have been more different. God promised his kingdom would go forth. And in order for that to happen, Christ had to be preached. So Paul rejoices in the fulfillment of God's promise. But he acknowledges that those who preach Christ from selfish ambition, they afflict him. They pain him, just as their actions pain the Lord. I mean, we could even look to Mars Hill. It's a church that's been mentioned from the pulpit here a number of times, so I'm not going to go into detail. But they are a prime example of what I mean God's purposes, which is the kingdom expanding, can be fulfilled in ways that do not honor God. Arrogance and bullying, just to name a few. Similarly, God had promised that his temple would be built. And because he promised it, it was going to happen. But the way that David's son would build the temple mattered. And this is where we learn about the wayward nature of Solomon's heart. Because Solomon lacked love. He certainly didn't lack love for himself He definitely did not lack love for beautiful things or beautiful people, but he lacked love for God. We saw in our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the highest of all virtues. You know, figuratively speaking, Solomon may have spoken in the tongues of men and of angels, and he may have understood all mysteries and had all knowledge, but because he did not have love for God, he was at best a noisy gong, and he was at worst absolutely nothing. 
Love is also the way that the world knows that we are Christ's, which we saw in our gospel reading this morning. Jesus says the world, the world will know us by our love. First, our love for God, and then our love for one another. And actually, I want to take it a step further. And I want to say that love isn't just the highest virtue. Love is actually what makes a virtue a virtue. It's what makes something virtuous. Wisdom is a virtue, but what is wisdom without love? Well, I've already said, it's, it's foolishness. And we see that in the life of Solomon. Despite his incredible wisdom, because he lacked love, we look back on his life now and we wonder, how could he have been so incredibly foolish? Now let's just take a look at a couple other virtues, just to make the point. Strength. Strength is a virtue. Be strong and courageous, right? But what is strength without love? Strength without love is fragility. Yet again, we see this in the rise and the fall of Mars Hill and the arrogance and the bullying of their lead pastor. He was a man's man, and he raged against the machine of cultural Christianity. There was actually, though, a lot of good in what Mars Hill was about. Certainly, if you listen to the podcast, you, you will know that. But only from the top, there was little or no love. And so over time, it became pretty twisted. Over time, his leadership and the culture of the church, they became toxic. Because strength, which this leader had a lot of, without love, is fragility, which we eventually saw. Service. Service is also a virtue. But what is service without love? Well, service without love is selfishness. An example from my own life is that I was a part of a church plant from 2010 to 2013. And after church, every single Sunday morning, we would have to stack chairs. And somebody had to do it, so I took it upon myself to stack chairs every Sunday morning so that other people could mingle. Uh, initially, I started, doing it, I started doing it just because it had to be done. But over time, I began to realize that I'm doing this because I want everybody here to think that I'm a really humble guy. I'm doing this because I want people to believe that I am a sacrificial leader. Because people like sacrificial leaders. People are drawn to humble people. And so that's why I wanted to do it. But in reality, as I stacked chairs, my heart was incredibly puffed up. I was so arrogant. I might have been one of the most arrogant people at that church plant. My service wasn't sacrificial. My service was incredibly selfish. The only person that I loved was myself because service without love is selfish. Now, you can do this on your own sometime. Just name a virtue and identify its vice. With love, you have the virtue. Without love, you have the vice. So what's a virtue that you hope to cultivate more of in your life? You know, what ultimately determines whether your words or actions are virtuous is whether they are made in love. I listed a number of challenging circumstances that we are all in earlier. As some of you guys are preparing to retire, some of you are preparing to graduate, you're, you're, you're asking the Lord for wisdom to care well for yourselves and for your families. Maybe even a couple of you were praying about whether to join us in Atlanta to plant a church. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> if the decisions that you have to make as you navigate your challenging situations are made with love, then they will be wise. If they're made with love, then they will be strong. If they're made with love, they will be sacrificial. And essentially, if they're made with love, they will be virtuous. 
Now, as we conclude, let's tie our two background themes together, that God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises, and the way that God's promises are fulfilled matters to him. And when we tie them together, we see that God's promises could only be fulfilled by one who was perfectly faithful to him, one who was God himself. Because another covenant promise that's in the background of our text today is from Genesis 3, when God says that someday somebody will destroy sin. And that could only be fulfilled. And the only way that could be fulfilled is through perfect love. And the only person who loves perfectly is God himself. And so God had to become man. God had to be, he had to be born And he was. And if you think God is capable of fulfilling his covenant promises through a pagan king, just imagine what he can do through the king of kings, whose birth we now look forward to during this Advent season. And he's not just the king of kings. Jesus was the better priest who offered the better sacrifice, who said that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it again in three days. And he did. He did these things. Only he was speaking of his body in his life, in his death, and then his resurrection three days later. His body, which was the true temple. You know, John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus did this. Jesus laid down his life for you so that you can face whatever challenges require his wisdom with love. Because of Jesus and his great love, our sins are atoned for, and God sees us now as perfectly virtuous. And because of Jesus, and because of Jesus' great love, we can actually be virtuous. In love, we can be wise. In love, we can be strong. In love, we can serve. And ultimately, in love, which is a virtue in and of itself, In love we can love because we are fully and eternally loved in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that it is ours. Help us to claim it. Help us to trust in it and help us to experience it. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.